Welcome to Neil Oliver Live, the podcast of my show on GB News. You can catch me live every Saturday evening from 7 till 9, but don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show each week. So let's do it. Neil Oliver Live. Sometimes I feel as though I've got a walk-on part in the first of the Omen films. My world feels so shadowed now by creeping malevolence, which is to say ill will and hatred. I barely rule out hiding in my house and papering over the windows. People still write to me most days, often to air their fears about what they see as nothing less than an existential battle between good and evil. More and more, I am inclined to believe them. Loud are the calls for us to go as far as necessary, all the way until Putin and his forces are defeated or dead. More millions of refugees are displaced from all they have known and on the move in hopes of encountering the kindness of strangers. There's not just war in Ukraine, there's also war in Myanmar, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, in many African countries including Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, Nigeria, Congo, Maghreb, Mali and more besides. I've only listed some of the most obvious ongoing horrors Some of the fighting in those places is decades old, but mostly we don't watch anymore because our media don't show it to us. Sons inherit the hatreds of their fathers. Daughters bury the bodies of their children, just as other mothers buried their children in their own time. I'm ashamed to admit I don't think enough about the suffering of others. I am unforgivably aware that unforgivable wrong and despicable cruelty is endured right now this very moment by millions of people around the world while I shop online and keep my head bent over my smartphone. I will never be able to atone for what I turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to now and have done all of my adult life. It might have been Plato who said only the dead have seen the end of war. Whoever it was, we have known the truth of the statement for a long time. War is always with us. Since the outbreak of war in 1914, what we called the Great War until we learned we had to give them numbers. There have been precious few days without organised armed conflict somewhere. Malevolence and hatred are nothing new either, of course they aren't. But just as war is growing bolder yet again, talk of a new world war indeed, so the practice of malevolent behaviour and its attendant expressions of hatred is on the rise again as well. Most sinister, Hatred and calls for death are being normalised in the online world, even actively encouraged. Facebook and Instagram announced last week they would be allowing users to call for death and violence towards Russian soldiers. Normally so-called hate speech is banned from such platforms. But the American parent company Meta have relaxed their hate speech policy in a dozen countries in Eastern Europe and Caucasus so long as the hatred is directed only at Russian soldiers. Death to the Russian invaders, it seems, would be okay by Meta. I only have heartfelt sympathy for any man, woman or child ready to fight to the death in the face of an invader. The thought of my home, my children's home, being attacked and destroyed, their peaceful world torn apart. The thought of harm inflicted upon them by strangers from elsewhere fills me with nothing less than murderous rage. I understand rage and hate because I feel them too, but I'm also ashamed of my hating 
and so I try always to keep it inside. More and more, every day now in fact, I think about Alexander Solzhenitsyn's quote about the line separating good and evil, passing not between states and not between countries, but right through every human heart and all human hearts. I've quoted that line on here before, but only because I think it's one of the most important lines ever written. I feel hate, and so I know I have it in me to do terrible things, as does every single one of us. I know that we are watching others doing terrible things on our behalf because we are too concerned about self-preservation to do those things ourselves. If you know and accept as much that you are potentially dangerous, you might just keep the hatred in check for a whole lifetime. Anyone believing they are only good, righteous even, with love hearts and platitudes in their Twitter bios as though to prove it, is definitely worth keeping an eye on. Meta have, via their spokesman, Nick Clegg, former leader of the Lib Dems, stated they will not condone on their platforms specific threats of violence towards Russian civilians. We would be naive, however, to imagine that expressions of violence, condoned or not, but visible, will necessarily remain contained within the online world. Actual violence towards innocent, law-abiding Russians, Russian speakers, even just people with Russian names and accents, surely slides ever closer. I refuse to hate random Russian people just for being Russian. That's racism, as I have understood racism. On their homepage, Meta's mission in the world is summarised as give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. I honestly do not see how both ideas, allowing for the circulation of calls for death and violence and a pledge to bring the world closer together, can exist in the same moral universe. Meta, and so Facebook and Instagram, are not elected by anyone. Meta is a company that exists to make money. They do, however, have almost total control over what passes for the public square where we talk and air our views. What is deemed right and wrong when it comes to expressing our thoughts publicly is now the exclusive preserve of the unelected technocrats of Meta. Now they have taken it upon themselves to decide who might be hated, whose death might be called for. That's quite some right to assume. Just because you approve their choice of the condemned today doesn't mean you'll like it tomorrow. It might be you tomorrow. We are being manipulated as never before in history. Even the medieval church could barely dream of such control over how people think and act. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon apologised last week to witches tormented and murdered hundreds of years ago. Her timing is interesting when we are poked and prodded into one witch hunt after another right now in the present. These are dark days and they will likely get darker for a while yet. Literally darker and colder for those who won't be able to heat their homes on account of the surging prices of gas and oil, sources of energy upon which we will depend for decades at least. We are kept in a permanent state of fear and uncertainty. One crisis after another, each one bigger, more threatening and beyond our control than the last. The Covid crisis has vanished like morning mist just a few weeks ago, the message was still that we had to sacrifice freedom and the right to work and be educated in order to save Granny. Now Granny is to be left to turn into a popsicle in her own unheated home while we look the other way. But while Covid has been put out of sight, 
its consequences have not. Our economy was devastated and a cost of living crisis utterly inevitable long before Putin put his missiles in the air over Ukraine. The printing of money, oceans of notes had already and unavoidably sown the seeds of disaster for our currencies, for inflation such as not, and has not been seen in lifetimes. It might be worth pointing out that in amongst all of this we have been and the European Union was still buying tens of billions of pounds worth of gas, oil and other commodities from Putin's Russia so that we are effectively financing both sides in the war. I've begun to wonder if hypocrisy and political expediency aren't the fifth and sixth horses of the apocalypse. Our government's handling of COVID sowed the seeds of something else, and that was the division of society into two tribes, one large and one small. Hatred was whipped up by media and by government, COVIDiots, anti-vaxxers, granny killers, Malevolent hatred is out of the shadows now. In his novel of a dystopian future, 1984, George Orwell wrote about the two minutes hate during which citizens were invited daily to vent their hatred towards whomever the government said they should. He wrote, the horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act apart, but that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary a hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one even against one's will into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blow lamp. We've already learned what we must say in order to be safe from the disapproval, or worse, of wider society. We nudge closer and closer to what is called compelled speech, when it's not enough to think the supposedly right thing. That supposedly right thing must be broadcast for all to hear and see. Failure to say out loud the approved thought has been made harder and harder. I wonder if compelled hate can be so very far away. Now, all of that is my opinion, of course, uh, but we like to hear from you, you know that we do. Uh, if there's time uh, later in the show, uh, I'll read out your replies. So can you email me and tell me what you think on gbviews at gbnews.uk and can you tweet me as well at gbnews. I'll read out as many of your comments as possible a little later, as I say. Now, to help me along uh, during the next two hours here on GB News and TV and digital radio, uh, I have a panel. Uh, here physically in the studio uh, with me, I have the author and founder of the consumer website moneymagpie.com, Jasmine Bertels. Good evening, Jasmine. Lovely to have you. And all the way from the United States, I hope, I'm delighted to say we're joined by the rapper and commentator, Zuby. Hello, Zuby. Hey, Neil. How's it going? Great to see you. It's good to see you too. Um, we're trying to understand a very complex geopolitical situation at the moment, Zuby. Uh, I wonder, what do you think, what would you, would you say a person is supposed to do right now uh, in pursuit of the truth? Man, that's a, that's a big question, and it's a difficult one. I think 
In pursuit of the truth, I think the first thing that any individual has to do is to be humble, understand that there is, are a lot of things that we don't understand, no matter who you are. There are far more things that we don't understand and have all the details of, and there are more answers that we don't have than ones that we do. So I think the first thing is having that level of humility. I also think being open-minded, being willing to listen to different voices, different sources, and not to simply outsource your thinking to those voices, but to think critically. Think critically, take things with a grain of salt, understand that there are various biases and agendas out there, and simply to take that all in, look at things from a different perspectives, listen to different voices, challenge your opinions, put your ideas out there, discuss and debate. And I think all of these, no matter what the subject is, are great ways of getting at least closer to the truth. Jasmine, do you feel, um, what's the right word, railroaded, I suppose, to accept a simplification mm. of what is surely and undoubtedly a nuanced story? Exactly, yes. I'm glad you used the word nuanced because that, that's what comes to me. Because as, as you were saying, we do feel railroaded, I certainly do feel railroaded, not, not only to, to take aside, but to actually say things and, and, and take action. It's a bit like clapping to the NHS. If you don't say, oh, I'm pro-Ukraine and, and aren't um, all the Russians terrible, then there's, there's something wrong. And it's, you know, you wonder if at some point the thought police, you mentioned Orwell, are going to come around and go, you know, why are you not thinking this? And I agree with Zubi that, uh, you know, it's, an, it's a nuanced issue that we have in front of us. We need to take information from various different sources. Um, and and I, I do get very suspicious when there seems to be one single narrative and any dissenting voices are effectively squashed. That is not a, a proper democratic system. That is not a, a helpful system for us to live in. Zubi, uh, listening there to, to Jasmine, what can, we, what can we do meaningfully as, as individuals um, to, to ensure that questions are still asked uh, in, in, in the hope of, of what is surely desirable, which is the building up of, a, of a, a, cons a continually more nuanced understanding of what's going on. Yeah, I think Jasmine made a great point there, which is that it seems that certainly for the past decade or so, maybe it's gone on longer than that, but on every single issue, everything that gets a lot of mainstream attention, there is always sort of one acceptable narrative and set of opinions and even set of lines that you're supposed to go along with and repeat. And whenever that happens and people just en masse immediately fall into that, I think it's something that we should always be aware of. Now, we talk a lot about the concept of freedom of speech, but to me, freedom of speech is much more than simply a legal or even a social concept. It's actually something that you have to do. So in terms of solution, I think the best way to do it is to use your freedom of speech, use your freedom of expression. Thank God we live in countries where you can do that without being arrested for questioning certain narratives against the government or the media or anything like that. But as we know, there is still social pressure. There is desire to conform and just go along with it, lest somebody call you a name or make an accusation against you or something like that. So I think the best thing we can do is what we're doing right here, having this conversation, being willing to ask questions, listen to other people, not demonize and label and name call and all of that. 
I think there's been far too much of that on various issues over the past few years. This uh, desire to just demonize everybody and paint everything as a simple black and white binary. The truth is most issues are far more complicated than that. And whilst we can take sides and there's nothing wrong with taking sides and having strong opinions, it's good for those opinions to be informed and to always be truly tolerant and being at least willing to listen to what other people are saying. Yeah, Jasmine, I, I sometimes feel as well that the social media platforms in particular are no longer fit for purpose, mm. not to put too fine a point on it. I don't think they're, they don't feel like safe places for debate, if they ever were. Well, it's a good point, yes. Yeah. And, and I suppose, you know, on, on their side, they would say, well, we are just a publishing platform. It's, it's not up to us to, to police. Well, this is what they used to say. It's not up to us to police what happens. Then we had various issues where they were told, no, you do have to police it. And now they've gone in big time with all sorts of things like shadow banning, as you know, you know where somebody is... Mm. say, tweeting and nobody sees it because they're, they're essentially shadow banned. Um, people are literally just taken off for saying the words or, or using ideas that, that are banned, you know. Um, Zuby said that we're, we're in, in, we are lucky to be in places where you can speak your mind. But, you know, at the moment, I feel, at the moment you can speak your mind. But gradually, I think these, these freedoms are being taken away subtly. It's, it's not overt. But particularly on social media, and, and we now have the, the online safety bill, which is coming along with, with a lot of very good ideas. But there are some very worrying ideas in it as well. Um, so that, for example, you know, if you happen to say something on social media that basically isn't within the narrative or it makes um, the, the government look a bit bad, you could be banned. You could be taken right off and your, your views cancelled, you know. There, there's too much of this around now in the name of safety, in the name of looking after us. Again, you know, one keeps going back to Orwell. Zubi, do you feel the heat? Um, you know, you're out, I know that you're out there. I see and, and read a, a lot of what you have to say. Uh, I, I, do you feel uh, under pressure to, to not say the things that you're saying in a way that you didn't a year or two ago? Honestly, Neil, I don't. Um, I often tell people that I can't operate from a position of fear. I think what's been going on and the reason why there is this chilling effect and this feeling of increasing censorship isn't, I don't actually think it's primarily coming from the platforms themselves. And I don't think it's primarily coming from governments. I think it's, there's this chill which causes people to self-censor and self-police. It is very Orwellian in that people do not want to consider a thought crime. And oftentimes what happens is people end up self-censoring. It's not actually that they are being stifled from speaking directly or that they're being deplatformed, or in many cases they haven't even been shadow banned or anything like that, but they're so concerned about the social repercussions and perhaps the repercussions with some of these platforms that they themselves don't even take that step to speak their mind to any sort of degree. I think in terms of a, a higher level concept, it's really important, I think, especially for people in the Western world, to remember that freedom is a little bit of a messy concept. Something as simple as freedom of speech is very messy because, of course, there is speech that we do not like. Words do have power. We've seen that many times all throughout history and throughout the present. So it's easy to understand why people don't want to allow people they disagree with or who say things they think are upsetting or offensive 
to have a platform. It's understanding. It's a, it's a natural human urge. You hear something that you find an abhorrence or that goes against your own beliefs. And the natural urge is to want to shut that person up, to, to shut down that opinion, to, to censor that book or individual or writing or whatever it is. So I think people need to resist that urge and understand that freedom is a wonderful thing and it's so great that we have it, but it's something we have to be constantly vigilant about. And we're never going to have this I think oftentimes we're sort of striving for this perfection and human beings are not perfect um, and anything created by human beings is not going to be perfect. So yes, it will be messy. There will be things out there that you don't like and that upset you and make you not feel good. Um, and however, it's a little bit of the cost of freedom. It's never going to be an absolute. It's always going to be trade-offs. So I think people need to decide and really think about whether they prefer this illusion of safety and security or they prefer the reality of freedom and liberty and understand what trade-offs they're, they're willing to make there. I think that's a fascinating notion, mm. that it is messy. I think, that's, yeah. I think that's so important to bear, to bear that in mind. There's a conversation that will continue uh, as the show progresses, but at the moment we go to a break. Uh, after the break, we'll meet the British businessman who has driven to Poland to help some of the refugees who have fled Ukraine. Welcome back to Neil Oliver Live. As promised, there's some uh, reaction in already uh, based on, on, on um, the monologue and, and the conversation so far. Um, Dave says, Putin is basically getting his evil way because he is in essence wearing a nuclear suicide vest that he'll trigger if anyone decides to try and stop him. Dion says, we wouldn't allow any other terrorist casually walk from city to city threatening to blow themselves and others up, would we? We'd do everything and anything to neutralise the threat. Uh, Gary says, Neil, I have read 1984 many times over the years and never thought it would actually become a reality until now. I totally agree with you concerning social media. I find it dangerous and concerning. Mm. Uh, Lorna says, my fear is that we have replaced COVID with war mm. and anti-vaxxers and pro-choicers with Putin. Mm. I feel like I've stepped back to ancient Rome as I watch the MPs at Westminster applauding Volodymyr Zelensky. There is a distasteful feel of the Roman arena and the applause as the gladiators enter the ring. Mm. It's all interesting mm. uh, and valid comment, I would say. Mm. Now, since Russia attacked Ukraine uh, more than two weeks ago, over 1.4 million Ukrainians, think of that, 1.4 million human beings, uh, have fled to Poland. It's the largest number of refugees the country has seen arrive since the Second World War. But instead of refugee camps, volunteers from across the world have arrived in Poland to open their arms to those in need, as our reporter, Bradley Harris, who is in Poland, has been finding out. A supermarket car park, now a refugee centre for Ukrainians fleeing their country. This man is handing out free SIM cards to those who arrive across the border, some with nothing. Since Russia began its war with Ukraine, the impact of it has echoed across Central and Eastern Europe. Most of them have arrived in Poland, where people from all over the world have welcomed Ukrainians with open arms. Paul is from High Wycombe. He drove to Poland to help those at the border. Literally got here about two hours ago. I've been inside. I've registered the vehicle. 
um, yeah, I've got to fill, I've got to fill this in, register it out. And I said, right, okay, where do I find people? They said, you have to find people. All right, so they now want me to wander around, looking around for people to find. It, it, there's just no organisation whatsoever. So um, I have actually had a sign made up from the last refugee place, which actually um, in Ukrainian says I can take two people. There's, you know, anywhere. I'll, I'll drive to Denmark if I have to. I'll drive to Sweden. I'll go anywhere. So, um, yeah, a couple of days ago, I took a, couple, um, a family to uh, Prague. They were, they were in desperate need. The, the father had lost his wife. He was with his um, two-year-old uh, lad, and he had his sister with him. You know, I drove nine hours through the night, slept in the back of the van for two hours, and then drove nine hours back. I'm totally dedicated to this. Um, I've got a business at home which runs itself. I've got brilliant people people have been donating um, so I've got enough money for fuel and um, I've got some friends coming over but we need more help He's using his own van to move supplies It's been a lifeline for him and those who need his help What is driving your passion? Just helping I, I, I see stuff on the news all the time and I, but actually coming to a place and seeing the desperation we've just helped i've just bumped into a couple of people uh british people they've just come from um from ex exeter i've just literally organized they don't know what they're doing i kind of know a little bit i've just there's, a, there's an old lady who's 70 she's got like a five or six year old um kid with her they're freezing cold outside there's two lads who are like 12 there's, there's, there's four of them all together i've loaded them up and they're now driving so they're driving for five hours down to somewhere I can't even remember where it was, but it's all set up on ways. I've done all that. I've got the interpreter sorted out. They're on their way. We've just got to help people. It's just, it's, it's really bad. It's, it's bad out here. This spontaneous reaction is seen everywhere in Poland. People coming together, sparking a humanitarian turning point. Bradley Harris, GB News, Przemysl. It's such a difficult images to watch. Refugees are always, it's always... It's so confronting mm. to, to see that that human uh, trauma and, and to know, you know, how how close it is to home in in many practical and geographical senses. Um, I'll be joined all evening uh, by by Jasmine here in the studio and by Zubi uh, from the US, but also joining us now to help us better understand what's happening in Ukraine is Justin Doherty. Uh, with a background including 16 years in the British Army, uh, peacekeeping in the Balkans, uh, and also time spent uh, within a team tasked with uh, psychological operations. Uh, thank you very much for making time for us this evening. Good to see you. Hello. Hi, Neil. Um, you are so much, uh, in terms of your, your life experience, uh, you, you will have such a more uh, complete understanding, of, I would think, what's happening at the moment. Uh, when you look at what's unfolding uh, in Ukraine, uh, what do you... Uh, do you recognise the tactics? Do you get a sense of what Putin's ultimate objective is at this time? Yes, I, I think what we're seeing is we are involved in an information war. That much is, is, is clear. And what happens in an inf information war is uh, essentially three things. First of all, there's a battle to control and own the narrative. Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's good? Who's bad? Who's winning? Who's losing? And, and you were talking earlier about how it, it can become very simplistic uh, and, and polarized and, uh, uh, and uh, not particularly sophisticated. There's also an attempt to sow doubt and confusion. And you know, we saw this 
most recently in Syria, and, and Russia successfully, I think, was able to create significant amount of confusion. And of course, when we're confused, we lose uh, purpose, we lose the will to fight, we lose uh, a common understanding. And then there's a longer term game, which is, you know, what, what is important to us? Uh, what are we fighting for? What, is, uh, what are our values? You know, what do we stand for? Do we stand for freedom and democracy? Do we stand for speech? Do we want to defend ourselves? What, what, what do we want? Uh, what are the limits? So, uh, I mean, I think, you know, we find ourselves in, in this information war. It's very clear how it's playing out. And I think, you know, we can look at events on the ground in the Ukraine over the last uh, two weeks and, and, and see a, a very decisive uh, set of narratives. There's a Ukraine narrative and there's a Russian narrative that is very, very different. We hear a lot at the moment suggesting that the war is going badly for Vladimir Putin. Is that how you would read it? Or are we misunderstanding uh, in the West what he is actually about? It's a very interesting question. If you look at the armoured thrust, then that appears to have gone very badly indeed. And uh, you only have to look at some of the uh, some of the narratives that have evolved online, and some of the uh, some of the websites and, and fact collect collectors. Um, it, you know, I, I think the Ukrainians have surprised the world in their ability to get real time imagery of uh, what's happening on the front line out to the world. So, you know, there are websites where you can uh, and Twitter feeds where you can literally look at a, a, a fairly accurate breakdown of. The number of armored vehicles that the Russians have lost. At the same time, we're hearing interesting narratives emerge. So, for example, we've heard a lot in the last uh, week uh, uh, about uh, captured Russian soldiers or killed Russian soldiers, mobile phones containing rather desperate and sad messages to their uh, mother's dear mama. Uh, I'm fighting in a war I don't understand. I'm scared. I'm a long way from home. So th there is certainly a, a, an apparent uh, narrative which seems to be reasonably effective uh, about the uh, slow progress of the armoured thrust. But of course, we all know very well that Putin has other weapons and the ability up his sleeve to create much, much, much more damage. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't think we should be lulled into some sense that this is uh, over and done with. I think you know, this is only the very, very start of, of, of a conflict that is both uh, 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 kinetic uh, and on the ground, uh, but importantly is, is an information war in which we are all involved. We are all part of this information war. Let's, let's be under no illusion that this isn't uh, an information war limited to uh, a couple of distant countries. We are all part of this and we are all playing a part in it. Something I was struck by very, very early on, um, in recent years we've heard a lot about uh, how modern 21st century warfare uh, is very different, a very different beast compared to the, the way wars were fought in the past. Cyber warfare and and drones and and actions carried out remotely and so on. But when I when I watched what Putin is doing in Ukraine, it, it does look as if the old reliance on tanks and planes and men on the ground is still very much to be taken seriously. 
however much you might hope for the effectiveness of cyber and, and drones. And we don't know what his strategy is, and we don't really have a strong sense of the thinking that lay behind this initial phase over the last two weeks. Some people have suggested that Putin had been misled by his circle of advisors who may well be yes men and, and people who feel that they cannot speak truth to power. So it, it may have been a strategic miscalculation. Um, but I think, you know, you, you have to have, you have to have uh, soldiers and you have to have armor to, uh, to, to take ground and to hold ground. So th that bit is important. The other thing I'd say is that information warfare, although it is new in its current manifestation, it is not a new thing. Uh, Athens and Sparta essentially were evolved, involved in a war of ideas. They had different uh, ideas about uh, how the world should be and different outlooks on life. During the Cold War, the Cold War is essentially a battle of ideas. We had uh, a group of people, we had the West believing in freedom and democracy and capitalism and free markets and, and, and so on. Uh, we had a very different idea in, in, in the Soviet Union. So these battle of ideas aren't new. I think what has changed is that we are no, now all involved. So we all play a part. We all get involved in reading, understanding, commenting, having an opinion. And I would say, you know, I was really interested in what you were uh, discussing with uh, Zuby um, and uh, your, your, your panel earlier. I think what we need to do to understand this war and to play a, an appropriate part in this conflict, which we are all engaged with, is to be alert and to be alive to what is going on and to ask questions. And I think that is arguably what has happened over the last uh, two weeks that makes this conflict different from anything that we've seen before. I think people are much more alert and much more alive to the potential of these conflicting narratives to fake news uh, and to misinformation. How complete a, how complete a picture uh, of what's happening in Ukraine should we, as the as the watching public be entitled to expect at the moment. You know, we, we do live in, a, in, a, in an era of where we expect instant gratification. You know, we ask the question, we get the answer. It, it has only been a period of time to be counted in days or you know, a couple of weeks. Are we being premature in, in hoping to understand what's going on? It's a really good question because of course, we all want to dig a little deeper, or we, we should all have the desire to dig a little deeper and try to make our own judgments. Now, you know, that is very difficult. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, Russia Today or Sputnik News, these state-controlled media outlets, are a force for good in any way, shape or form. But uh, for you and I not to be even able to have a look at their websites anymore um, does make things a little bit harder for us to get, get, get a full picture. I would like to be the judge of uh, what I believe and, and decide not uh, hand that over to uh, state authorities in this country or, or anywhere else. So I think we've got to be very, very careful. That's an, that's an excellent insight. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for making the time to be with us and for you know, casting more light uh, you know, into what is otherwise a very uh, foggy picture. So thank you. Uh, and we'll... Thanks. We'll pick this up again in weeks to come, I'm quite sure.
Jasmine, you were nodding along yeah. there. You yeah. know that 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 uh, uh, Justin's assertion that we we ought to be able to decide what it is that we see. Yeah, we we should absolutely. And and you know, as a journalist, I was dismayed to see uh, Russia Today closed down. As as Justin says, you know, they are absolutely propaganda outfits, but. There's, there's a lot of fact there as well, and it's useful for us to see both sides because we're getting propaganda. Let's be brutally honest. We are getting propaganda every day in, in this country. I mean, as Justin was talking about, um, you know, how, how well the Ukrainian side is doing, that's the, as far as we know, as far as we know. But we have had battles in the past where we, the, the people, have heard about, you know, whatever side doing phenomenally well, oh, it's great, until suddenly we find that, no, they, they've actually been mm. defeated and it comes as a terrible shock, frankly. So if we had both sides, we educated people, we're, we're all, in, in, you know, whether you've had a university degree or education or not, we, we can think for ourselves, we really can. And we should be allowed to, to listen and find out from both sides and make up our own minds. Absolutely. The thirst for information and the need to ask questions, I'm... I'm possessed by it at all times. Uh, we'll have to move on, have another break, uh, after which uh, we will talk about uh, a new study that claims Stonehenge, that iconic monument, once served as a solar calendar. Welcome back once again to Neil Oliver Live. Lovely to have you with me. Perhaps no archaeological site in Britain, possibly you know, much of the world has inspired more speculation uh, than the great and enigmatic stone circle that we call Stonehenge. Who knows what it was called by the people who designed and built it? A new study from Bournemouth University has offered up the possibility that the stone circle laid out during the third millennium before the birth of Jesus Christ served as a solar calendar that enabled the farmers living in the vicinity to keep careful track of the passage of time, the passage of their seasonal year. It's all fantastic stuff. Joining me to speculate about this possibility is archaeologist and journalist Mike Pitts. Hello, Mike. Nice to see you again. Hello, Neil. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing very well. Anytime I see mention of, of somewhere like Stonehenge in the running order, I'm, I'm instinctively delighted. Uh, can you explain for us, uh, and for, for the viewers especially, how Stonehenge might have worked as a, as a solar calendar? OK, I think your word speculate is a good start. Um, but um, the idea is that in the main stone circle there are 30 stones, and that these could be divided up into three groups, and um, that together, as you move around the circle, around these stones, you can... Um, you can map the passing of days and months in a year and you end up with a year that has 365 days and, and then every few years you need a leap year and the missing days are mapped by the five trilithons in the centre of the monument. That, that's the idea. It's extraordinary it's, um, sophistication that they were even allowing for, for, uh, for the extra well, days. Well, yes, yeah, well, yes and no. I mean, I think there are, there are two things to bear in mind here. The first is that there have been many studies of societies all over the world of different types of technology, different, different types of community. Um, and it's almost a universal that people have calendars. You know, we need, um, in this part of the 
world, for example, we need to know um, how the seasons are passing because it hugely affects the way we earn our livings and, and grow our food and so on. Um, and so people are aware of the passage of seasons. They're aware of the phases of the moon and the changing position of the sun in the sky. And they're very often aware of star constellations as well. This is just a universal. So the question we would have of the people who built Stonehenge would not be, did they have a calendar? Because I think it's fair to assume that they did. Um, and we can see from the layout of Stonehenge and other monuments all over Europe that clearly they had counting systems because we very often get these multiples of fives and tens and, and other numbers that, you know, the obvious things. So the question then is not so much if they had a calendar, but did they represent it in this monumental form at Stonehenge? And if so, why? You know, <laughs> there are all sorts of reasons for building Stonehenge. Um, and actually... Turning it into a calendar, I think, would become fairly low down on the list of ideas I would have because you don't need Stonehenge for a calendar. You know, precisely. I was that was that was my next question was why would you go to such Herculean effort when you can exactly. count when you can count to yeah. three hundred and sixty-five yeah. without moving yes. uh, pieces of sars exactly. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe you know, calendrical computations were part of what was going on at Stonehenge, but I think. Whatever explanation we have, and of course people are coming up with explanations, you know, every few days almost. I mean, it's it's um, it's it, the why Stonehenge is is is, is an, a question we're never going to be able to answer. But at the same time, it's one that we can all have a go at. Um, and and but I think whatever the solution is, it's got to be more complicated than just a single thing like saying it's it's a computer or it's a calendar or whatever. Um, because to build this thing would have required an enormous amount of effort and organisation, bringing people together from at least most of southern England and Wales, if not further afield, um, and would have consumed huge resources. And there must have been a really compelling social, political reason for wanting to create something as large and complex and challenging as Stonehenge. And I suspect if you were, you know, if we were to able to go back in time and stand there and we'd see these crowd of people maybe involved in the construction, a bit like a sort of a summer solstice event today, except they're work people rather than um, worshippers, um, and ask these people, if we were able to go up to them and say, what are you doing, mate? You know, what, why are you doing this? And I reckon we would probably get as many answers as there were people there. You know, it's like if we were to go out, I don't know, supposing when the O2 arena was being built and we were to ask people, why is this happening? There's a simple a sort of superficial answer, which is that it's to celebrate the millennium and it's to create this, this, this exhibition space. But there are so many other things going on behind, you know, in it. I mean, it was so embedded in politics and society and all sorts of complex issues. It was much bigger than any simple explanation at the time. I've, I've always, I've long wondered if, if its main function and you know, many other places besides Avebury and the rest existed as uh, places to which people would be drawn, places that were spectacular enough and big enough that everyone knew where they were and that there were places in the landscape where you could go at specified times in your, in your year in the knowledge that other people would be there. And as well as marking midsummer or midwinter, you could go on with the other stuff, finding husbands and wives for your sons and daughters, trade, 
uh, and just sorting out what was going on and that they're, that they're, they're magnets to pull people to specific places. I think, I think the idea of bringing people together, I think, is, is, is on the nail, really. And I think, and that's a big part of that, of course, is going to actually be in, in the construction process. I mean, moving the stones. So if you take the Welsh stones, for example, the ones that the blue stones that come from Wales, I mean, they have a journey of maybe 200 miles over land. Um, and those, that's going to take many weeks at least. Um, and in the process of those journeys, in the course of those journeys, people are going to be staying overnight in villages and in farms. They're going to be put up by people and people are going to be involved. And it's going to be something that engages people, even if you're not part of the construction project, of which maybe more than a thousand people would have been at, at the height of the major monument. Um, and it would have just drawn people together. And almost, you know, I, you wonder if that was actually part of the purpose of the construction in the first place, was actually bringing people together in this way and maybe helping to seal alliances between groups in different parts of the country. And then that, that idea of a focus of communication um, and gathering and celebrations and festivities and so on then continued as, as kind of embedded monumentally in the stones and continued for generations. Mike, I could talk to you about Stonehenge uh, for the rest of the evening and beyond, uh, but sadly I have to uh, have to cut it short there and, and move on. But thank you so much for your time and for bringing so much more understanding uh, uh, to the way in which we look at and interpret that wonderful place that is Stonehenge. Thank you, Mike Pitts. All right. Bye, Neil. After the break, because we're on another break, we will meet this week's Great Britain, a woman who has done wonders to help men suffering from cancer and also their families. Welcome back. Time is flying. It's time now, surely, for a story to lift the spirits. On this show, as you'll know if you've watched before, we call those who go the extra mile, often literally, to make the world a better place, Great Britain's. This week's shining example is Susan Bates, founder of the charity Balls to Cancer, focusing on the needs of male cancer sufferers and also their families. Susan and her husband, Mark, received a Pride of Birmingham award recently. And Susan joins me now to tell us more about her efforts in the never-ending war against cancer. Hello there, lovely to see you. Hello. It's all, I tell you, the, the, the opportunity to hear from people like yourself for a few minutes every week, it, it does me more good than I can easily tell you. Uh, first of all, tell us how, how all this started for you. Uh, why are you involved in this fundraising effort? We started the charity about 10 years ago. Um, it was just a bit of fun on Twitter with a Fumble Friday because Mark's dad died of a brain tumour and my granddad died of throat cancer. And there was no support or awareness out for any men. Um, so we, we decided that we needed to raise the profile, get people talking, men especially. And then um, we gradually grew from there to be a registered charity. We realised that with the support we thought was there for women weren't, even though the, the awareness for women's cancers is absolutely massive. Support isn't there. So we, we then grew from a little awareness campaign to a charity that now supports men, women and children, um, just doing a little bit where we can, when we can. Why is it? There's been a lot of effort. I've, I've seen it, we've all seen it, the effort to try and raise men's awareness, particularly of cancers that affect men. 
why are men still so much more reluctant uh, to, to come forward and, and, and get this sorted? In the 10 years we've been doing it, we've seen a massive improvement. We know there's still a long way to go, but it's the same like with the mental health. We are talking more, but there's still, I think there's still a, an embarrassment. Or, and men don't talk. Women will talk. They'll talk to their moms. They'll talk to their sisters. And we're trying to break that down and get that normal for men too. I mean, my husband, he can be as bad. And I'll say, but you'll have to find the doctors then. And so they need that push. And we all know there's nothing to be embarrassed about. The doctors have seen it time and time again. Yours is nothing new, whatever part of your body it is. But we just need to keep, well, there's still a long way to go, so we've got to keep keeping on. How do you get men to talk? Is there a, what, has, what ideas have worked for you in, in encouraging men to set aside the taboos and just come forward and, and find out what they need to find out? I think the name of the charity, first off, got so many people talking about it. Um, we were told it, we shouldn't be using the name. So that, that straight away is a massive icebreaker. Then we tried to do like the football. We, we tried to do male-orientated events. So we've done Snowden walks. We've done um, the, the charity football games where men can uh, pay to play against celebrities and pro-celebrities uh, footballers. Um, and then that gets a conversation going. It, it, it is all about just breaking that bit of ice. And we try to throw the humour in so that it, it isn't all serious. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've got to do this. We've got to do it for all our generations. I can't, I can't let you go without asking you about the fact that you, are, you and Mark are also foster parents, aren't you? You, you, you look yes. after foster children as well. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, How long? We started it, we, we fell into that because my family did it, my mum and my stepdad did it. So it, it was just seen as an automatic progression for us. And then we've been doing it ourselves for 14 years. Um, I think everything we do humbles us, but to be able to do that, that's one of the most important things. And we've just, um, we're just in the process of adopting our little girl. So it's all really emotional at the minute, but I mean, we wouldn't change things. We've, we've got two lads that we've fostered long-term. We've had, oh, I don't know how many through our door, and we just absolutely love it. Obviously we've got our own birth children, and it's something we very much do as a family. Um, I, I can't, I can't see, if anybody's thinking about doing that, please do, because there's a desperate need for adopters and foster carers, and it's just so rewarding. Susan, I, I, w I wish, I sincerely wish I had more time with you. You're a, you're a shining light, and I particularly uh, relish the, the straightforward and no-nonsense way that you talk about everything from, from cancer to, you know, to, to looking after uh, you know, uh, you know, children in need of foster and, and adoptive care. It's a, it's a pleasure. It's, a, it's an unbounded pleasure just to be in your company. And I would, I would talk to you for another uh, hour. Thank you but... for having me on. It's nice to be able to, to share something of what we do. And I hope people will see what we are. And we, we do, we support everybody. So please, if, if anybody with cancer or their families need us, please get in touch. You are lovely. And I, I will join with you in saying balls to cancer. Carry on with the good work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome back to Neil Oliver Live. This next item uh, concerns complications in relation to a premature birth. I'll be 
coming hopefully, uh, if the technology allows it in a minute or two, to, to Michael Greco, uh, who's known to millions of people as Beppe DeMarco from the, uh, from the soap uh, EastEnders. Uh, Michael is obviously such a familiar face, and he will be when he turns up on, on your screens. Uh, and, but more recently, he's been coping with a very personal drama. Uh, his little boy, Gianluca, uh, born in July, uh, had a rare birth defect that meant that his intestines were on the outside of his body and, and all of that had to be dealt with. Uh, Michael, Michael is going to join us presently when, we, when the technology al allows, but I'm also joined in the studio uh, by uh, Anita Jacobs, who uh, is, uh, will be familiar to uh, faithful viewers of the show. Anita was here some weeks ago now. Uh, to tell us her own traumatic experience relating to the births of Darcy and Maxwell after just 27 weeks of pregnancy. So while we wait for, uh, for Michael's story, Anita, how are little Darcy and Maxwell? They're doing very well, thank you very Rem much. Remind us, if, if you would, about the, the circumstances of their arrival. It, it was um, completely out of the blue, essentially. Um, they, I'd phoned the hospital in the morning saying that um, there was something wrong, to which they discounted me completely. Um, long story short, I then went over to the hospital in the afternoon and my husband and my elder daughter were with them at the time. I asked them to leave the room that I was in and turned to the midwife and said, oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, the first baby's here. <laughs> to which she said, I'm, I'm sorry, um, and sort of, it, it progressed from there. Um, but nothing prepares you to see your child in, in that state. Mm -hmm. You walk through the, the doors of the neonatal unit. I actually didn't see Darcy and Maxwell that, that day. I walked in. They were um, tiny though, weren't they? Were, yes. yes they Darcy were. was 930 grams and Max was 1.1. Kilos. I mean, a baby, a baby of, of, a, of, an, of a typical birth weight is, is a terribly frightening, fragile uh, creature uh, to be handed, never mind uh, uh, to, someone to, so small. Uh, th this is it. And there was this tiny thing. And there were more tubes than baby, really, is, is the best way to explain it. You're, as you walk through those doors, you are thrust. You sort of come, come from a parent that I'd had a child before. I went into hospital one day, I had a baby me and that baby left the next day and suddenly we're a family. Mm -hmm. You then have these two little things that are completely reliant on the machines keeping them alive. Mm -hmm. You're thrust into a world of tachycardia, of bradycardia, bradycardia of DSATs and, and you know, I've, I've walked into rooms and they've been sort of working on my children because they've stopped breathing, as, as I explained before. Which is just something that premature babies, they forget to breathe. Yes, and, and that sentence, sort of when the nurse said that to me, we sort of passed in the corridors and she said, don't worry about it. Premature babies just forget now, to Michael, breathe. Michael is with us now. You'll be, you'll be pleased to... No, not at all, <laughs> not at all. Um, it's, it's reassuring to hear that, that uh, Max and Darcy are, are doing so well. Uh, but Michael joins us now. Hello, Michael. It's, evening, uh, it's lovely evening, to evening. finally have you join us. Finally got through tech, huh? technical support. Great. I, I read I read the notes on this, Michael. You know, I'm, I've got I've got three children myself, um, and it's it's traumatic enough 
but tell us what happened. What happened to you uh, uh, as Gianluca arrived? Traumatic's one of the words you could describe. I mean, I'm a blubbering wreck. I mean, I was watching um, Tangled the other day with my step stepkids who are 15 and 13, and I bawled my eyes out. I mean, it's a Disney film. Um, so it's just the way it's affected me now. Uh, I'm 52 years old. Uh, Gianluca was born when I was 51. And um, is everybody there? Can you see me? Yes, absolutely. Oh, you can. You're hearing the loud and clear. Tell us, okay, tell us what it was. Tell us what were the circumstances of, of Gianluca's complication. Yeah, so basically he had a, a, something called gastroschisis, which is when the intestines are born outside of the stomach through a little hole by the belly button. And it's quite common. It's one in every thousand births, I think. And we didn't know anything about it. And my, my better half has lupus which is an autoimmune disease. So um, we kind of knew there might be something wrong, but she has the privilege of having more than one scan. She has a scan every two or three weeks. Now, they didn't pick up this on the first three scans, which is, you know, unheard of, really. And I think as the baby gets bigger, it's, it's more difficult to see if there's anything wrong with them. And um, I think in the six to seven weeks before he was due to be born, um, the consultant said, there's something not right here. Uh, so we went down to London Hospital in, in Warwick, in, near Houston, and they were fantastic. They said, look, this baby's got gastroschisis, which you know, we didn't know anything about. And uh, he was born literally the, the next day and then was transferred to Great Ormond Street, which he was on a, a life support machine for, well, for the first four weeks, and then he was in hospital for eight weeks. So pretty traumatic, really, really traumatic. Um, we, it, it's kind of ambiguous because we, it's one thing, do you want to know that your baby has this condition? And, you know, and, and then obviously my partner, Helen, would she have to then be careful for the next eight weeks or so? Or did you want to um, not find out and then when it's born, but then, you know, you think you might damage, you might damage the, the intestines when it's born. So it was a whole, it was a whole big rig rigmarole. And what was then? What what then had to be done? You know how how complicated and, and dangerous a procedure was it to, to uh, make the necessary corrections? Yeah, it was extremely complicated. I mean, he I had to sign literally his life away five times because he was going under general. You know, so there was basically without putting into finer words, saying that you know he may not wake up. Um, it, the only way I can describe it, Neil, is that um, as you see in, in the pictures, I don't know if you see it clearly, but it's like I went to see him in his incubator immediately after he was born, and it's like having a huge bag of mints on your stomach covered in cling film. You know, the, the intestines are huge, and it virtually covered his whole body. And so they had to gradually, I think five or six operations, they had to gradually lie him on his back and just let it just, oh, it's, it's a miracle. They're in the great almost street, best hospital in the world, obviously. And uh, it just had to gradually settle him back into his stomach. Um, but the, the procedures were really, really fine. And, um, you know, we were going to bed every night wondering whether our beautiful son was going to wake up. So it was the most traumatic thing I've ever been through. So he, he, arrived, in, he arrived all the way back in July. Um, and what's his, what's his situation now? Are the, are the operations at an, at an end? Well, the worst case scenario, other than him passing away, was he'd have to have a colostomy bag for the rest of his life because they would have to cut, cut out a lot of his bowel. So he'd have a lot of problems. Thankfully, thank God, they didn't have to do any of that. Um, and now he had a lot of problems initially with his milk. Um, oh. and, uh, and so we had a lot of indigestion problems and digestion problems and uh, for the first couple of months. 
But he's he's thankfully Touchwood. He's he's doing really well. He's he's a beautiful, beautiful little boy. Yeah, I mean he's constantly. He has the biggest smile, and we call him the Joker. He has a, a smile from ear to ear. He's so beautiful. He's been through so much already. You know that we just think anything that comes to him in later in life, he's just going to pass with a breeze. And he's he's the most adorable little boy. And um, yeah, I'm a, like I say, I'm a blubbering wreck. I, I didn't for me, and I'm sure the ladies and yourself will testify to this. You, you don't really the, the love I have for my child is a love like I've never known in my life. You know, mm -hmm. I love my parents, I love my partner, I love my brother, and, you know, your siblings, your friends. But this love, this this love I have for this little child, considering what he's been through. Yeah, I, I have to say, I have to say as well for 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 people who are who are uh, only listening on radio, the the images, the pictures there of Gianluca were just the most golden <laughs> little human being, um, yeah. just a, an absolute a, a joy to behold. But uh, Anita, yeah. you were watching and nodding along there. It's obviously brought back associated memory, a different story, but you were uh, empathising all the way through uh, there. Completely, um, my daughter um, Darcy actually ended up in Great Ormond Street. She dropped to 730 grams and needed to have a heart operation. Um, they needed to close a valve in her heart. Um, but it's even just the transport. So uh, Michael said that his son was transferred to Great Ormond Street shortly after birth or the next day after birth. They actually have ambulances that have doctors, a special nurse and an incubator because if you think you're having to move this child who's reliant on everything to breathe, um, so even that side of things, it, it doesn't really get thought about. It doesn't really get mentioned. You wouldn't know it's there. These are all things that mm -hmm. you need them, but you don't ever think you will need them. So you don't mm -hmm. know about them because you don't think that your world's ever going to turn into that. Um, but yes, Darcy had, um, had to go in and normally to shut a valve in a heart, they would go in through the leg. But at 730 grams, she wasn't quite big enough um, so they actually went through her back um, oh, wow. and closed. Oh, and, I mean, as, as it's Michael just said. just chilling to think about it. Mm, and the, 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 what, what gets me, listening to Michael, listening to, to your story or, or an update on your story, the extent to which it puts everything else into, into perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, obviously we're... we're we're preoccupied with the, with the bigger stories of, of the world today. But to be reminded that woven through all of these big events, people like you and people like Michael going through these kinds of, you know, heart-stopping uh, dramas and, and traumas that, that overtake every other aspect of your life. It's... I, I, I chuckled when um, Michael said that he calls his son the Joker. He's always got a smile. Darcy, we call her Chuckles because she is always laughing. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, just to be, you know, it's so, so important in these difficult times that, that family, children, you know, love of family, love of children is, is so much what it's all about. Absolutely. And we can, all, we can all share, live vicariously through these experiences so as to be reminded about what actually is important on the face of the earth. And the fragility of life. And the fragility of life. Yes. Mm, absolutely. So, uh, Michael is is uh, what's uh, what's what's John Luca up to at the moment? Is he just is he just uh, being typical? Is he just being typical boy at the moment? Yeah, he is. He's he's, he's uh, a strong little boy already. I've just put him to bed actually. Um, that's why I couldn't come and see you guys because we um, we're so we're a little bit 
precarious situation at the moment about having him have someone else look after him. You know, I'm sure that would, that would change, but um, he needs his mummy and his daddy right now. Um, and um, he's when he's when he's had a good night's sleep. Actually, we put him to bed at half seven, eight o'clock most nights, or maybe half seven, and he sleeps pretty much straight through to half seven. Now, your baby, your baby not, sleeps. My baby sleeps. Trust wow. me, I'm wow. not joking. The first six months was pretty tough, but the last two months, it's been incredible because I love my sleep. You know, I'm going to just say a quick story. I'm, you know, 52 years old now, but most, and this is my first child. Most of my adult life, I've been single, so I haven't had to deal with with children. And I met the most beautiful woman. She has two kids of her own from a previous marriage, so I've taken on three people plus a child plus no sleep. So it's been it's it's been tough. You know, I'm not going to say it's been easy. I've been used to most of my life, most of my adult life, having great amounts of sleep. And um, yeah, but he, he, he sleeps in England or Italy. I'm Italian, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's taught you a thing or two about life, has he not? Absolutely, absolutely. Like you said, Neil, you know, these precarious times we're living in right now, the last couple of years and what's all been going on and everyone has their own views about it. And, um, but for me, my, my child is, is everything to me now. You know, he's everything I do now. I'm a, I'm a very fit 52-year-old. I, I pretty much go to the gym nearly every day when I'm not working. I eat well. I don't really drink. I don't smoke. I don't do anything bad. And, you know, and the reason I do this, I, I did it before Gianluca came along, but I, I do it more now because I want to be a, a healthy dad for him to grow up. It's what I owe him. Mm. It's what, you know, a 52-year-old man with an eight-month-old child, I owe him for me to be alive for the next 200 years. You know, I want him <laughs> to see his dad well. I don't want to be someone who doesn't take care of himself. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely story, Michael. Obviously, it started in, in the highest drama uh, uh, you know, and upset, but the, the way things have unfolded for you, it's, it's another uplifting story to hear. And a thousand <laughs> thanks for, for sharing something oh. so, so intimate and so... You know, revealing about the human story. So, so thank you so much for that, being with Pleasure. us, and all the best for Gianluca and you and and your and your partner. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Neil. Okay, I think uh, Jasmine's still here. Anita's still here. Uh, Zuby, I think, will still be with us down the line in the in the states. Is that the case? Are we still with us? I'm wondering, Zuby, listening listening to that. Do you? Uh, I'm. I am. I am reset by a story like Michael's. You know, we get so we're so I, preoccupied I, with the with the with the geopolitics, and then you hear about a man and a woman and their and their and their baby going through a difficult period, and you you get snapped back into the here and now, don't you? Yeah, I was I was smiling the whole way just listening through not just his story but a couple of the ones before that as well. I think you know we've been we constantly get bombarded with negative messages, things to polarize us, things to divide us, things for people to get angry about. And I think those stories, those human stories are so important. We all have them of different types, positive and negative, nuanced, and amongst everything else that's going on in the world, all the differences we have, all the issues we may have as individuals or as societies, I think it's so important and so wholesome and so positive to hear just these wonderful, positive life stories that can make us all smile it's so important it is it's, a, it's just a, it's just a lift isn't it it's, it is. it's the fact that you know it starts in such trauma you mm. know that and you too anita you know so much you know pain and emotion and all the rest but then to hear the resolution of it and to and to see the pictures of 
of, of the little boy there. And, and smiling and strong. And, and as you say, with Darcy, she's laughing all the time. Yes. And, and it does, it teaches us. It's like, it's like with animals, babies, animals. They, they show you that there's good that comes out of, of really tough times and, and uh -huh. that it can be turned 180 degrees. Completely. It's such a it's such a curative, I think, because yeah. if you if you don't if you don't ha have those touchstones, if you're not reminded of family and loved ones, you know whoever it is in your life that you love and whoever it is that you would put your own life on the line for, mm. But, mm. well, you need to do it. You need to keep being reminded of what life is actually about. Yeah, because one thing I wondered is, does, do you think this has made you? I'm trying to think of a better way of saying more of a mother, if you like. I'm. A premature baby is always a premature baby, so we're constantly fighting. So I'm constantly watching for what's going on. Is, so that, the, is that the case? Me, me, medically speaking, are, are you always in a sort of a catch-up mode as, a, as someone who's been born prematurely? I'm, yes, I, I do. I'm, I'm watching them. For example, Darcy and Maxwell were born in the wrong school year, so I've had to fight to keep them back a year at school. Because in true terms, they'd have been 14 and a half months mm. younger than a child who'd been born on the 1st of September in the year they should have gone into. So I had a fight on my hands there. I will have a fight on my hands again once they go to secondary school because I will have to apply for their secondary school places the year before their peers. Mm -hmm. um, and you are constantly... Fighting. I had to fight um, to get their their yearly their first year assessments done. Um, they were excluded from the list of the sight and um, the height and weight ratios um, oh. because they were in the wrong year year cohort. Mm. So I picked up two sobbing little children one evening, yeah. and I was like, "My goodness, what's what's happened?" So, oh, Mummy, the nurse didn't want to play pirates with us. Oh, God. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so you're constantly yes. on a back foot just pushing for yes. the same thing. My view is they worked as hard as they did to get to this stage. They're not going to have to fight again. And I'll do it. And I just have to just check myself as thinking that what Michael said there about that, that condition, so, so traumatising. Is it one in a thousand? I mean that okay that's that's quite unusual but that's a lot of babies being born mm. here and yes. around the world with that kind of life threat and that's just one of the conditions that can that can befall a, a, a person yes um i mean prematurity is one in nine in the uk one in nine one in nine babies are born prematurely has it always been like that or is, is that it fluctuates recently? it's but it's it's but that's the t statistic that's coming through at the moment that, that's why I'm trying to do what I'm doing, to, to raise awareness so that people know. Yes. Because, as I said, unless you need it, you don't know what resources it's, are there. You're right, it's the not knowing. You're forewarned, forearmed and all, all the rest of it. Until you told your story and then that's the first time I've, I've lived this long and not heard that story before. And yet it's happening to one in a thousand families. Completely. Yes. Ah. Oh. After the break, it's another break, we'll discuss what's been described as a milestone in polar history, the discovery of endurance off the coast of Antarctica. Back soon. Welcome back to Neil Oliver Live. Uh, lots of emails and, and feedback this evening. Uh, Gilbert says, lots of grannies have been choosing between heating and eating for years. You're only bringing it up because it's now affecting the middle class. 
Brian says, I'm sick to the back teeth of all the political posturing and the push towards all choosing one side, vaccine, COVID mandates, green policy, Ukraine. The, re the list is endless. Uh, Nicola says, hate is a dangerous emotion. Whoever gives it will receive it. Uh, this is not only a religious dictum, uh, but one of natural law. Uh, and Donnie says, these are dark times with so much hatred. We're constantly being manipulated and railroaded who to love, who to hate, what to say and what to think. There we go. Strong feelings out there this evening. OK, something completely different. If you're trying to hire a limousine in Northern Ireland uh, for a wedding, say, or another special occasion, prepare to swallow some extra costs. Licensing rules have made things a little tricky put it mildly, limousines in the province are licensed as though they were taxis, which can add a lot of overheads. The industry uh, has been pushing for this legislation to be removed, and our Northern Ireland reporter, Doogie Beatty, has more. Getting a lift to your wedding or funeral in Northern Ireland is not so easy. For over a decade, limousines of any shape have been held inside laws that govern everyday taxis. Mike Barr of the Wedding Vehicle Association wants laws brought into line with the rest of the UK. Well, if you run a wedding or a funeral business in uh, England, Scotland or Wales, you're exempt from taxi legislation. And the taxi legislation in Northern Ireland is very excessive, where our drivers have to do theory tests, uh, practical tests, and then they have to do CPC training every year to maintain their uh, licence. The theory test alone is a uh, very low pass rate of maybe, it's around 21 or 24 percent. Costs for this training are expensive and time consuming. Andrew McMullen speaks for the National Funeral Directors and says that the current legislation has no relevance to the job in hand. To put a driver through a PSV uh, licence training is approximately £500, uh, plus you have to do CPC training uh, of 35 hours uh, of taxi driving uh, regulation, which is totally irrelevant to, to um, the service and the needs of the bereaved in Northern Ireland. Jonathan Buckley is the chair of the Infrastructure Committee, and they are confused as to why exemption certificates cannot be used in the short term to assist the industry. We can't seem to understand why a simple solution such as temporary exemption certificates have not been issued to the industry. The Minister has said that they're looking for a comprehensive review of the 2011 Taxis Act. What I would be saying to the Minister for Infrastructure and indeed her officials are, let's sort this problem out now by granting temporary exemption certificates to those involved in both wedding cars and indeed uh, funeral directors to allow them to get on with their business while we in politics can sort out the minutiae of why and why, and why they should or should not be involved in such taxi legislation going forward. The economic growth after the pandemic is only now starting to show. The hospitality sector was particularly hard hit and small changes to legislation such as this may well assist that growth. We did ask the Minister to appear on camera. She refused and released a statement saying no exemption certificates would be released, pointing around road safety and the taxis bill. The industry does realise that regulation of some kind has to be in place, but it has to be relevant to its needs.
a one-size-fits-all taxi legislation does not work. Uh, I'm happy for my drivers to go through an access NI check, which means that they're of good repute, they do a medical, and as long as they have a clean license, and I'm happy with their driving, obviously, as well, then I don't see what the issue is. This legislation has been around since 2005, with small tinkering around the edges. But with elections due here within a couple of months, there will be no clear road ahead. Doogie Beanie, GB News, Belfast. Welcome back. Now, some stories never lose their power over us. Uh, in the case of ships lost, there's a haunting that's undeniable. Uh, who can forget the images of Titanic uh, when her last resting place was finally identified in the North Atlantic? Well, there's another one now. Uh, the wreck of Sir Ernest Shackleton's ship Endurance, uh, which was trapped in sea ice before sinking uh, in 1915, has been found off the coast of Antarctica in what has been called a milestone of polar history. The Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust said the ship was found at a depth of just over 3,000 metres, a couple of miles, uh, and approximately four miles south of the position originally recorded uh, by the ship's navigator. Um, we've got some pictures uh, of, the, of the wreck, uh, and I think that they, are, they are some of the most astonishing images that I've ever, that I've ever had the pleasure of seeing. That's the, that's the, uh, the stern of uh, endurance. Uh, look at the preservation, you know, 107 years uh, in, that, in that cold darkness. Mm. Uh, the timber, there's nothing at that depth in that part of the world that, 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 that takes the timber away, that eats the timber. Uh, look at the shine on the, on the nails uh, holding the, 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 uh, the timber work together. Uh, it's just astonishing preservation, the, the uh, remote submarine uh, uh, cameras that were down there, they saw boots and clothing, uh, the rigging is still there. Uh, on the back there, that, that five-pointed star beneath the name Endurance uh, recalls the fact that she was originally called Polaris. Uh, the ship was built uh, in Norway and originally planned as a, as a base for, uh, for hunting for polar bears, for high-paying tourists. That's images, that's archive footage of uh, shot uh, uh, of endurance as the uh, crushing of the pack ice finally took its toll and the masts collapsing there. It took months. It was, it was trapped in the ice, in the pack ice, by uh, January of 1915, and it was in the November of that year before, the 21st of November, I think, when she finally finally succumbed and sank beneath the waves, not to be seen for 107 years. And now uh, the images of her at least are back with us. Uh, Zubi, if I can come to you, uh, there's an instant emotional response, I think, when you're confronted with, with a ship that, that should be alive on the surface of the ocean, uh, asleep on the seabed miles below. I think it, 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 it fires the imagination, does it not? Yeah, most definitely. Um, this isn't a story I myself am super familiar with or a time in history that I'm very familiar with, but seeing artifacts like that and thinking of the story behind it and thinking this isn't just a it's not it's not just a shipwreck, right? There, there were there were people on this. This is something that was used and went out on a journey and people were involved with. I think it's fascinating to look at anything historical like that and think of the stories that are behind it. I think that's why it's so fascinating. 
it's it's in every sense a time capsule, isn't it, mm. Jasmine? That's mm. you know that was that that ship departed Millwall docks in London in 1914, actually on the day that Germany went to war with Russia. Right. At the in the, in the opening moves of the of the First World War, and the the images of her are coming back to us at a time when there's war with Russia again. Interesting. And what what I was thinking also is um, how how did how did we whoever it was how did they find it? Because as you say, it's been 107 years. Well, its its position was logged. Uh, they were they were trapped in pack ice. Mm -hmm. They sailed south from South Georgia, got caught by the pack ice. And basically, that was it. They, they were no, the ship was never really free again. It was it was trapped and drifting north all the time as the as the pack ice moved, uh, and f and finally, after those months and the build up of the ice, the, the pressure became too much. The, the, some of the timber was was popped, mm -hmm. seals were broken, and the water got in and the and the ship sank. And it, it, so the the ship's navigator Frank Worsley, or the or the or the the expedition's navigator was was logging their position all the time, you know, using the, okay. the, the navigational equipment of, of the time, mm. uh, you know, and, and triangulating from the position of the sun and the rest of it. And so he had logged where uh, uh, he right. thought they were okay. when it sank beneath the waves. So there was this, so there was a, he had narrowed it down for them. And there have been previous attempts to find endurance on, on the basis yeah. that they had a, a pretty good idea about yeah. where she ought to be. Uh, but finally, at this attempt, uh, and it was a, the, the news of the of the of the discovery was came a uh, hundred years to the day since uh, Shackleton was he's buried on South Georgia and it's a it's a hundred years to the day since his death so it's 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 laden with with significance that it comes to us now. It would be great to have it brought up. Would that be possible? Do you think? No, it's it's yeah. been it's long been declared. Partly apart from anything else, it sits in the. The, the Antarctic Preserve, looking at images there, look at them. Look what they're wearing. Yeah. You know, they look, they're, not, they're not wearing anything more substantial than, than you or I might wear to go out in heavy rain. <laughs> <laughs> and they're at the bottom of the world, <laughs> plan to walk across the Antarctic continent. That's what, when men were men. <laughs> oh, y y y yes. Um, and the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the significance of it that it comes back, but no, there, it won't be touched. It's in the, it's mm. in the Antarctic Preserve. It's, it's effectively been designated, designated the same sort of protection as a national monument, oh, right, but even yeah. almost like a war grave. Mm -hmm. Although there are no, no one, no one went to the bottom. Good. Uh, yeah. Famously, Shackleton got all his, all his men back mm. after the most extraordinary adventure you know, one of the most extraordinary polar adventures that there will ever be. They're amazing. Uh, but not so much as a as a broken cup or a or a boot will be recovered from the oh. from the wreck. Uh, it's it's been it's been designated something that must be inviolate, untouched, oh. almost almost holy. So this is the best that we can see, really. Yeah, I mean, but the the, the visibility. I think they, they they described it as looking like it was like looking through distilled water. It was so clear. Wow. You know, all they had to bring to the party were, were lights, just just illumination. Uh, the the ship was uh, at the time she was built. As I say, she was built in uh, 1912 by by Norwegians who planned to use her to take high paying tourists to the Arctic, the other end of the world, to hunt for polar bears, and she was mm. called Polaris. And at the time she was built, she was one of the strongest timber built ships in existence, possibly one of the strongest ever built. But 
she was of a, of a, a particular design. Uh, another ship that you might have heard of is the Fram, mm -hmm. that was the ship that Amundsen took to the South Pole. Right. Amundsen, who famously beat Robert Falk and Scott to the South Pole. Yeah. And the Fram was built with a bowl-shaped keel so that if she were to be trapped in pack ice, she would kind of pop up. As the, as the ice pushed in, she would rise up and not be crushed. But the Polaris didn't have but that. But Polaris was dependent entirely on the, the strength and integrity of the of the of the skill of the shipwrights right. and, the, and, the, and the strength of the timber. And as was demonstrated by the 21st of November 1915, mm. she wasn't strong enough. No. And when she sank, uh, the, the, the crew called Shackleton the boss, or boss, um, and they said, you know, what, what are we going to do, boss? And he said, well, we'll go home. <laughs> but they're now minus a ship. <laughs> yes. They're on pack ice, which basically means they're on the surface of the sea. They're not on the Antarctic continent, they're on the sea on ice, and he said, take only that which you uh, will depend upon to keep you alive. Yes. And to illustrate his point, he took his gold watch out of his pocket and walked over to the hole in the ice and dropped it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to underline the fact, I don't need that because mm -hmm. it's not going to keep me alive. No. And th th these images that we're looking at just now, you know, the, uh, apart from anything else, it's the knowledge that, they, it's, the, it's the fact that they took cameras there and, yeah. and were able to record. And, and obviously, I mean, some of this came back. You know, I mean, despite the yeah. you know, despite the instructions, you know, the, some of it, some of it came back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, it's uh, just amazing how they managed in, in in the middle of absolutely nowhere, with as you say. That's a great shot there of the same bow there you see with the Polaris yes. star underneath Endurance. Right. And so small, it's only about 140 feet long. Oh, uh, you know, to, to, yeah. to embark on a on a journey to the end of the world, uh, in in a vessel like that, it's it's heroic in, in every sense. Oh, I'm so, I'm, I'm being inspired this evening by what we're seeing. <laughs> After the break, uh, with inflation at a 30-year high and families facing soaring energy bills, we will discuss the cost of living crisis. Uh, welcome back. For more than two years, we've been uh, enveloped by the COVID crisis. Without any time to catch our breath, we've got a war in Ukraine uh, and the threat of escalation of that conflict across Europe. With so much going on, it can be hard to remember that everyday life must go on somehow. What's already apparent is that a cost of living crisis, perhaps on a scale not seen for decades, is rising like a big dark wave. Still with me this evening, Jasmine Burfels and Zuby in the States, and I've also been joined remotely, but joined nonetheless, uh, by GB News' economics and business editor, Liam Halligan. Hi, Liam. Neil, great to be on your show. And that Shackleton coverage was just astonishing. I'm, I'm literally tingling, tingling. And to see, the, the, to see them in their own time and then to see the ship again. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, Liam, if I can come to you, first of all, with this huge story. It's, it's fair to say we're in deep economic water now, is it not? But how deep? It certainly is true to say that, Neil. For months, we've been talking about a cost of living crisis. Inflation was already at a 30-year high on January numbers, both in the UK and the US. There's this sort of long-term trend where the global economy was locked down under COVID. And then as lockdown was lifted across the world, demand surged. People rediscovered um, life beyond the pandemic and the global economy struggled to supply, so prices were going up. 
anyway. But then you had this ghastly invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and you had many politicians and media luminaries saying, oh, don't worry, Russia's a pretty small economy and Ukraine's doesn't really matter. It's insignificant in terms of economics. But guess what? Russia and Ukraine between them, Neil, are commodity superpowers. Russia is the world's biggest exporter, not just of energy, if you combine oil and gas, but also wheat. Huge fertilizer export. A lot of its exports come out via Ukrainian ports, the Black Sea, that are now mired in conflict. You have global shipping lines, the top six global shipping lines in the world, including one which is Chinese, no longer handling goods out of Ukraine and are no longer handling Russian goods in or out. All of this is leading to yet more inflation, more price rises on a situation that was already pretty inflationary. And that's why the cost of living, I'm afraid, is spiralling. How bad is that inflation? I, I keep reading figures between, I don't know, four, seven, but at the same time, I'm reading that these are uh, significantly under estimates. Uh, you know, wh what do you s discern is the reality of the, of the inflationary situation in which we find ourselves? Well, when you and I were kids in the 70s, Neil, inflation was regularly 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 15% per year. I'd, I think we all, and I've written this for many weeks in my Sunday Telegraph column, I think the rate of inflation is already in double digits for a big chunk of the British population. The lower end of the income spectrum, people who spend a high share of their incomes on energy, food, fuel, petrol and diesel to fill their cars and vans that they need to make a living. So I think the current Headline estimates of inflation, which are around five and a half, six percent, with the Bank of England finally acknowledging that those official measures could hit seven or eight percent, having for months waved away inflation, saying it was transitory. I think even those higher official estimates are gross underestimates of where we really are. I think the inflation, the lived experience, if I can use that phrase, of inflation for a growing number of UK households is already deep into double digits. It's already 10, 15% up on where we were this time last year. And, Neil, even before this invasion by Russia of Ukraine and the related sanctions that the West puts on Russia, the counter sanctions that Russia is now putting on the West in terms of fuel and food exports, even before that invasion, we've already got higher inflation coming in April because we've got fuel bills going up because the energy regulator raised the price cap because yep. fuel bills were already high. So it's it's hard. You know, I don't want to sound alarmist, but I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to mislead people. We are in for some serious 1970s style inflation. And you'll remember, Neil, in the 70s, the economy dominated politics. The music was better because society was more contentious, but it means that for a big chunk of our population, making ends meet is going to get harder. Yeah, yeah. But Jasmine, you were nodding along throughout everything that, that Liam had to say there. Mm. Um, things are already extremely difficult 
yeah. for a vast swathe of the population right now. Yeah, right now. And yet, clearly, what, what Liam is predicting and others, mm. that situation is going to get so much worse yes. for people who can barely hold it together now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have a neighbour who's a single parent. She works part-time. She's on a universal credit. And she told me um, yesterday that her, her monthly energy bill is going to be worth a week's worth of wages. So she'll be have to work for a week just to, to pay, pay her, her energy, bill. energy bill. And that's here and now. And the price, we're told, is going to carry on going up. As Liam said, it's going up in April. Um, it's supposed to go up again in October. We might have an interim rise as well. Um, and we don't know. And as Liam says, it, th this was happening before, way before Russia went into Ukraine and mm -hmm. any of that. We knew we were having a cost of living crisis. We knew think prices were going to go up. It's, it's just exacerbated it. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just that, sorry, it, it, there's also the, the, the money printing that's been going on as well. So we, we've had all the things that, that Liam mentions, but also huge, huge amounts of money washed into the system and incredibly low interest rates. That creates inflation. Uh, Zuby, you're, you're uh, listening to all of that. You're on the other side of the Atlantic. What, uh, what's, the, what's the experience that, that you're seeing uh, around you there in terms of the rises in prices, the impact on fuel, energy, all the rest of it? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I'll say that any inflation official number that's coming in at 5% or 7% is not correct. Anyone who exists in the real world mm. knows that number is more likely somewhere between... 15% and 50%, depending on specifically what you're looking at. Over here in the USA, all of the Americans right now are talking about um, what they call gas prices, what we call petrol prices in the UK, which are approaching, starting to get towards European levels in some places. They've gone up about 50%, which is a gigantic increase. If you look at things like building materials, just groceries, they've gone up certainly in the double digits. So I don't honestly know how they're keeping the official uh, quoted numbers as low as 5% or 7%. On top of this, what's frustrating about it is not just the fact people are going to suffer, but that this was so predictable. Back in 2020, there were many people, including myself, who were very skeptical about lockdowns, about money printing, mm -hmm. and about what that would lead to. And many of us were dismissed as conspiracy theorists or suggesting we are putting the economy over people's lives, mm -hmm. or, you know, it was really dismissed and people were so focused on the immediate pandemic situation that they didn't want to think about the economy, they didn't want to think about mental health, they didn't want to think about uh, physical health, they didn't want to think about the impact on children and so on and so forth. And those of us who were trying to take a more holistic approach and to think of the consequences of what would happen if you stopped so many people from working at, at the same time whilst doing all of this quantitative easing, uh, we were dismissed as the bad guys. So. I don't really take any pleasure in having this kind of like, oh, well, I told you so thing, because the truth is people are going to suffer. Yeah. And as it's already been mentioned, the people who are going to suffer disproportionately are people at the lower end of yep. the economic scale and people who do not uh, own assets, which will also yep. rise in value along with inflation. So it's, it's pretty frustrating. Yes, indeed. And Liam, if I can come back to you. Um, how much has to be done to, 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 in some way, bring a stop to this? You know, I, I've, I've seen figures of the 80% of the US dollars in circulation at the moment have been printed in the last couple of years. Um, what measures, realistically, however severe, would have to be taken to kind of halt this? 
And you know, when do we when do we take the pain that must surely come? Well, we've got um, a spring statement coming up from Rishi Sunak, our Chancellor of the Exchequer, on the 23rd of March. A spring statement is normally a kind of small news event. But, Neil, it's taking on uh, a much bigger importance because of the extent to which people's cost of living is rising and the fact that many, many people are writing to their MPs and saying, how am I meant to, you know, make ends meet and 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 pay my bills i think we're going to see quite significant non-payment of fuel bills neil i think we're going to see people getting really angry about this i think there's going to be political ferment over the rising cost of living quite soon and i say that with huge regret and reservedly i'm i'm you know a pretty long standing economics and business journalist. I don't go around spreading alarm, but these increases in the cost of living are so sharp now and so significant. And I think the political and media class is so, frankly, out to lunch about the extent to which they are about to impact ordinary people that there's going to be a backlash. Yeah. And Zuby Liam, might I'm going, to, I'm, going to have to pull, I'm going to have to pull it short there because we've simply run out of time. It's, there are clearly worrying times ahead. You wonder where the relief is going to come from. That has to be all from me on Neil Oliver Live tonight. My thanks, of course, to Jasmine Bertels, journalist and commentator, to Zuby, rapper and commentator all the way from the States, and to Liam Halligan there.